Hi, everyone. This is Kylie Francis, and you're listening to the Wharton Fintech Club podcast. Today, we are joined by Andrew Robinson, an executive in residence at Oak HCFT. Andrew focuses on developing insurance technology businesses through a combination of building from scratch and new investments in early and growth stage companies. Andrew has over 30 years of experience in the insurance and financial services industry. Andrew served as Global Chief Operating Officer and EVP of Crawford & Company, the largest independent claim services company, where he oversaw Crawford's four businesses with revenues of $1.1 billion. Prior to Crawford & Company, Andrew served as President of Specialty Insurance, EVP of Corporate Development and Chief Risk Officer for the Hanover Insurance Group, a $5.5 billion international property and casualty insurer. Andrew currently serves on three boards, Tareen Labs, GroundSpeed, and WeGoLook, and has served on Chaucer, Breckenridge Insurance Services, and BrainSpark. He is also on the advisory board for Wellness. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you for joining us today. Thank Uh, you for having me. To start, tell us a bit more about your background and your role at Oak and what made you transition from an operating role to an investor role. Sure, yeah. So... um... Real quickly, my career spent uh, 20 years in strategy consulting. Sort of the pinnacle was uh, I I was the head of the insurance practice for what today is PwC. Uh, it was a company they had acquired that I was a co-founder in, and we grew it um, to uh, to quite a large company, publicly traded, ultimately bought by PwC, and then and I left consulting around that time. Uh, entered industry, uh, had a fantastic. 10-year run at Hanover Insurance Group, which I joined at a point in time where Hanover was really coming through a very difficult period. Um, CEO uh, shared a vision that I uh, I happened to agree with and asked me to join and help him with that turnaround and and in the process of of really um, kind of co-architecting and co-leading that turnaround, he gave me the opportunity to start to take on P&L responsibility and, and ultimately ran uh, one of the four businesses for Hanover Insurance Group while also being the head of corporate development, chief, chief risk officer. Uh, and that business was sort of a complex, um, you know, casualty and liability businesses uh, that we grew from scratch to about three-quarter billion dollars over a 10-year ten, period. Uh, ultimately, uh, started to get involved towards the end of my time at Hanover in a number of tech things and, and was really excited by that, uh, but had not elected at that point to, to make the full commitment and try to do something in the world of, of insurance technology. I did move on to uh, another role for uh, the largest independent claim services company, Crawford, uh, and was responsible for their four businesses, a little over a billion dollars in revenue. And I got into that and, and I thought to myself, this really isn't what I want to do. And at that point, uh, elected to pivot uh, and pursue uh, the world of InsureTech and, and, and uh, concluded in the conversations with the team from Oak that this would be a great platform to do it. And uh, we, had a, we had a shared view about sort of a half a dozen key themes where we thought um, technology was going to uh, fundamentally change the, the insurance industry. Uh, and we agreed that we should go after those and I should be part of the team. Uh, and the, the, the thinking behind it, there really is not a, a, you know, a, a great deal of talent that has 
real deep understanding of the industry, um, the economics of the industry, the structural uh, elements, and also a good strategic view about how technology can start to transform the industry. And O concluded that me being part of the team would be an asset, and, and I concluded that they are just an outstanding group to be affiliated with uh, and try to do some really interesting things. And so uh, about four months ago, we uh, we agreed to come together, and uh, and I'm I'm very very pleased uh, to be part of the team. It's been a great experience so far. Cool, very interesting. The insurance industry has traditionally been seen as quite archaic, um, and you went into it very early on in your career. What motivated you to pursue a career in the insurance industry? Uh, I think everybody in the insurance industry doesn't actually um, target to go into the insurance industry. Uh, certainly not in my generation, at least, and. Uh, mine was really simple. Uh, I was working uh, for a uh, strategy consulting firm and uh, was asked to go apply the thing we were doing in manufacturing, which were kind of lean manufacturing back, you know, 25, 30 years ago, before it was called lean manufacturing, to try to do it in the back office of insurance. Uh, got assigned to an insurance client, and then the next thing I know, I'd been raising my hand to go overseas, and we had an international opportunity. It happened to be in the Lloyds of London. And once I got inserted into that uh, specific opportunity, it really developed in a way where uh, there was almost no turning in my career because I, I got involved in some very complex technical things uh, and became somewhat of an expert early on. And so by the time I was probably in my mid-20s, I was almost fully committed to insurance at that point and spending 20 more years in strategy consulting before going into industry, um, it was all but set at that point, right? Because almost every project and how I developed my career and ultimately became partner and so forth was all in the back of insurance. But it started very early on just by a set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned that at Oak, you um, have come up with a number of themes that you see affecting the insurance industry. Can you discuss some of those themes, um, what they are? and more generally, how is the insurtech landscape evolving? Yeah, so I think you have to step back and almost understand the macro characteristics. There is there's a lot of really interesting things that have been happening in the insurance industry in the last few years. Um, I think structurally, industry has really done a very poor job of returning its cost of capital in the last 15 years. Only one year has the industry in total in the United States returned its cost of capital, and only in three years has delivered higher than a 10% return on equity, which is an astonishing characteristic for a capital-intensive industry. So that is a problem to be solved. The second thing is that in the last five, six, or seven years, there's been this dramatic change where um, insurance is viewed as an asset class by sovereign wealth funds, by hedge funds, uh, by pension funds. And so there is a huge amount of capital that has come into the market that is part of a structural change where there is permanently going to be excess capital chasing um, insurance risk and you know so actually risk bearing capital so that's going to put further pressure permanently on the insurance industry and with that as a backdrop there's not only a need but quite honestly given the desire for all that capital to be put to work at returns that are better than the than the industry has historically performed um, there's actually a requirement and so it's in that framework where we see the opportunities and look i think they run across uh, every aspect, but in the in the most basic level, you know the the key levers within the insurance industry is that you select and price risk, and how it is that when a claim occurs, 
you actually ensure that claim ultimately is paid for an amount that's appropriate to the claim. And uh, on both sides of the equation, there is a tremendous amount of leakage and, and underperformance, and there's also a lot of friction. Um, and we're attacking all of that in the places where we aim to make investments. You know, I think on the underwriting side, there are new data sets. Obviously, sensor technology is, is, uh, is becoming omnipresent. Um, you know, the amount of information that's available that can inform um, underwriting but actually fundamentally drive new product design is almost an unlimited opportunity. Interestingly, if you look at where the venture capital money has been invested in insurance, very little of it has gone to the kind of things that I've just described. This past year, about a billion one of um, uh, venture capital went into uh, sort of the insure tech space in, in, in the United States and, and, uh, and Europe. And, you know, two-thirds of that was focused on distribution. So think about, you know, all the changes that happened in travel or in financial services, which is, which is a lot of online and, and consumer-facing um, kinds of capabilities. That's really where the money has gone, and it's really not attacked the, the, the more fundamental aspects of where true economic opportunity exists. And so that drives our thinking. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, you mentioned uh, all the funding that has been going into the insure tech space. And since 2012 to the first half of 2013, global insurance tech startups have raised $7.2 billion across 620 deals. What do you think is driving this? And do you think it'll slow down in the coming years? Uh, no is the answer to the, the last question. I think it's most definitely going to increase for a whole range of reasons, which I'll, I'll, I'll explain in a second. Um, look, I think the things that have been driving it is uh, probably a, a couple of very important items. One is, you know, the fintech world has matured uh, unquestionably, and so traditional domains within financial services, um, I think that uh, a lot of money has gone into uh, areas like payments and so forth, and the capital that's been behind those investments uh, is still looking for good opportunities, and there's less of those good opportunities today than there was five years ago. Um, so there's unquestionably a leakage or a bleed that's coming into insurance. Um, I think that that you know that the 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 potential here, um, driven by the kind of characteristics I described, would suggest that you know there's going to be more capital that comes in, and I think it's not just that sort of the VC money in the fintech world partly redirecting into insurance. There has been a um, a, a real serious increase in corporate venture capital. We were taking a look at some statistics, and uh, nearly every quarter, I think for the last 17 quarters, um, there's been at least a 10% increase uh, in the growth of corporate venture capital in in insurance. And so, you know, I think that that the insurance companies themselves, the carriers and the brokers, are looking to evolve, and so they're putting capital work in a in a way that uh, that looks like you know some of the other CVCs and other industries, and we're really at the early stages of that. And I think what goes hand in hand with that is an increasing focus that goes away from a lot of these uh, investments in distribution to solving core issues around underwriting and claims and the way the new data sets can be uh, can be utilized. Obviously, there's a lot of money that's going into IoT and and the role that IoT can play in insurance. You know, list goes on and on. But those are those are much closer to the core kind of enterprise issues that the industry faces. And, and I think that'll be a big driver in this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, and so you mentioned corporate venture capital and the insurance industry giants kind of investing in these startups. Um, having been on the other side, what do you think is making them um, invest in startups versus actually acquiring startups? How do you think they are thinking about the insure tech or the rise of insure tech startups? Well, I think it's really early days. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of fear, quite honestly, um, mm -hmm. because there's been just a, an incredible uh, level of attention. And at some level, there's a bit of me too. Um, there's very few examples of, of corporate acquisitions. One of the only examples uh, was while I was at Crawford, we acquired uh, a relatively high-profile company called We Go Look, um, and it's one of the few instances where an existing incumbent of size acquired one of the earlier stage companies. Um, I think we'll see more of that over time, but I think there's a lot of development and investment that's going to happen before we start to see in real frequency. You know, what's driving it right now, I believe, is fear, but I think over time it becomes greed um, simply because uh, if, if they're not going to do it, uh, start to deliver the value that they, they promise to their shareholders, you know, then their, their businesses really, uh, and I think that the shareholder support for their businesses uh, is certainly going to wane in some ways. And I, I, there's a competitive dimension here that you just can't ignore. Um, it's just the nature of the, the cycles of how technology develops in any industry. Mm -hmm. Great. And so you sit on the board for several early stage startups. What do you look for in an entrepreneur or startup? I, I think there isn't a single set of things that's very situational, but I am personally uh, of the view that in this industry, um, at least in the, the domains that I am personally involved, which tends to be solutions that are focused towards the existing enterprise world. So this is not, hey, I'm starting up something that is going to disrupt the incumbents, but rather really interesting solutions to help the incumbents perform better. I, I do believe that you need somebody who's got the experience and perspective of how the industry operates, um, what's on the mind of the, the C-suite you know, at the top of the house at, at carriers and brokers, um, and I think that's a really important attribute. You, you need somebody who's maniacal about the problem that they're going to solve, right? And, you know, in every single instance of the things I'm involved in, the CEOs of those businesses are really the torchbearers around this is a really important industry issue. It has to be solved, passionate about, um, about the way they're going to address that problem um, because that kind of, um, of real commitment to the issue that they're trying to address, there's no level of investment that can make up for that passion, right? I mean, you just need somebody who's really committed to that and really understands the nature of the problem. If it doesn't start with, hey, here's the problem that we're trying to solve, it, it's nearly impossible to build a, a, a really good business. Um, I'd like to think, and you know, all the businesses that I'm involved in are through their Series A investments, but they're not yet at their Series B investments. I'd like to think that a critical aspect of this is having the wherewithal or at a minimum um, being able to surround themselves with board members and advisors who can help them really think through the, the key points in time in which they need to, to step up and, and broaden the capabilities of the organization and have that perspective and context. I think that in the case of things I'm involved in, those CEOs are all first-time entrepreneurs who are trying to figure it out. Um, but I do believe they're all deeply experienced people um, who have hopefully uh, enough perspective to listen to that guidance and also be just thinking about this stuff themselves as the companies are growing about when they have to make you know, big talent upgrades and, and take big steps forward 
on the organizational front. Those are the kind of things that I think are, are, are important. They're not the only things, but they're, they're certainly the kind of things that I'm thinking about today as it, as it relates to the stuff I'm involved in. Mm-hmm. And I guess converse to that, um, what do you think makes a great venture investor? Well, I, I will say watching Oak, right, which I think leads both the fintech side and the health services side with you know, just amazing track record and watching them work. Um, I think that there is a whole bunch of attributes, but in the end, I think that fundamentally the orientation is about how do we make management better, and everything kind of starts with that. Um, so, if you, you know, if you're thinking in those terms, which is I really want to make management more effective in what they do, that kind of compass is really important. And I, I tend to see that at Oak. And I know that, for example, right now, probably by the time that this gets published, we'll have uh, early part of next year an announcement of a really interesting insure tech company that we've been um, actively working on. And through the course of the process, we've been uh, very interactive around thinking through product development plan. Um, one of my colleagues has worked very closely with helping them on the talent front and thinking through you know, the person who's basically going to be their product development had the profile of that person, getting the right kind of CFO in place. Those interactions didn't start when we got the, the, the funding done. They actually started almost at the outset, and it became a very interactive, you know, here's what we see that the business could use. How do you feel about that? Okay, since there's now alignment, what can we do to help push those agendas forward? So even before we've closed the round, we're already starting to add a lot of value. And then, of course, you just want to use your connections and your standing and presence in the market to help the stature of the company, um, which I think in many regards, we're in the two areas where we're involved, we're better positioned than many um, simply because the track record and the profile of the people you know, at, at Oak as compared to other firms. Um, not all of the firms, but many other firms. And, and, and I think that's been a real attraction for why some of the entrepreneurs uh, you know, want to work with us. And, and that's the case in this example that I just described um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've had a breadth of experiences. What are some key leadership and life lessons that you have for MBA students? So um, the first thing I say to, uh, to almost every person who's early in their career, um, and I think that to your typical Wharton MBA, these things might come more naturally, but uh, I am a big believer that context is worth 50 IQ points. So, uh, you know, whatever role, whatever industry, whatever situation you get yourself into, immerse yourself um, with anything that can possibly give you context because it, it will give you a 360 view of what you're doing. Um, and that 360 view will make you way more effective in your professional performance and your ability to make decisions and how it is that you seek uh you know, you support and guidance and, and direction. And that's kind of top of the list from my perspective. What do you mean by context? Do you mean seek exposure to a wide variety of experiences? Yeah. Well, so I'll go back to the question that you asked me at the outset, which is why is what's happening in insurance happening in insurance? And I shared with you, okay, let's start with the most fundamentals. The, the industry has returned cost to capital only one time in the course of the last you know, 15 years, has only delivered a 10% or better RRE three times in the last 15 years. 
you know, context is that. It's really knowing the things that frame almost anything that you're doing. And with that, it's a lot easier to focus on what's really important. But a lot of people, particularly early in their careers, they're given a role, they're given a problem, and they go after it versus stepping back and asking, okay, why is this important? What are the contextual elements that will help me really understand more about this problem? Um, that is really critically important. And a lot of times it's just simply missed. There's a intellectual curiosity part to it. It's kind of widening your thinking before you know your thinking. Um, and it's just a fundamental aspect to being effective. Um, and it's something I advise everybody who's somewhat early in their career on whatever they're doing. Um, so that's, I think, a key thing. The second key thing is, and it sounds, it might sound a, a little bit gratuitous, but my belief is it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier to really achieve your potential if you're really excited and really passionate about what you're doing. And a lot of times, particularly for people coming out of you know, top-tier MBA programs who are given great opportunities, they follow paths that are well-trodden with, with the banks or with the consulting firms. But really knowing that those are the things that you want to do versus that's, that's the path that many have taken. It's the path I, I should take as well as instead of stepping back and saying, hey, what could I be doing? What am I really excited about? And I'm going to direct myself towards those things I think is, is really important and, and sometimes just simply overlooked. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Thank you so much for all of your time and your advice. This has been a great conversation. I'm really pleased uh, that you asked me to uh, participate. Uh, and I certainly look forward to, uh, to following future podcasts as well. So thank you. Of course. Thank you.